Hello, all you cubby clubbers and reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm glad to be with you today. And I just wanted to talk to you about the person we are going to talk to next, because what I love about her is we've never, we've talked to a lot of people who kind of just follow their interests, but she's a real doer when she comes to following her interests. And I think that's the difference sometimes is that a lot of us know what we're interested in. We see an opening, we say, why isn't there a book like this? Why isn't there a website like this? Why is, I have this need, why is no one attending to it? And then for whatever reason, we assume that if it had been a really good marketable need, someone would have done it. Or if, you know, someone has done it and probably failed. We make up all these stories that are attached to seeing a need in a market. And what I love is talking to Robin Gorman Newman, who you're going to hear from next, is she made up no stories. She said, I'm going to fill this. I'm having this problem. I can't find a solution. Let me, let me solve it. So as she says, when she was younger and she couldn't, you know, find a guy, she ended up writing a couple of books about finding a good guy <laughs> and finding, you know, she was like, where's the guide on how to do this, right? And then when she was an older mom, um, she said she was feeling really bad about being an older mom and no one was there to help her. Her mother had passed away when she was younger. And so she created a site called motherhoodlater.com and it became a whole international sensation for older mothers. And then she got into producing on Broadway and I'll let uh, the story unfold um, when you listen to it. But it's the same kind of thing in that she was, she was interested in theater. She says in college, she was the little theater cr critic in her college, um, but she didn't pursue it. That was not her normal pursuit. But when you listen to the naturalness of how she comes up, sees an idea, and then makes a phone call, which I think a lot of us stop at. It's like we have an idea and we're like, no, I can't make that phone call. I'll look like an idiot or whatever. I think crossing that Rubicon of actually just doing it um, is what's unique. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Robin Gorman Newman. And at the end, I want to tell you about our wonderful freebie giveaway that will help you reinvent. So wait to the end and I'm going to be back. So welcome, Robin. So glad to see you here. Thank you for having me, Leslie. So let's talk a little bit about the theme that you said to me with all of your reinventions that holds it all together, which you said is the finding the things that interest you and pursuing them. So maybe let's start with the, the first, you know, peg in that, uh, what, that way of living. Because I think that's a really interesting way to look at what you want to do. Um, a lot of people get stuck um, at the very beginning and they can't get beyond that. So go right ahead and let, let's hear a little bit about your first peg, how you, you know, what you did in school. I also like to find out where you grew up and like, what's your background? Oh, sure. I'm a Queens girl. I'm a New Yorker. And um, I went to Hofstra University undergrad and St. John's University for grad. 
I have a master's in marketing, which has come in handy, but hasn't been my career path relative to what you suggested. What, what I've created is out of need and not just out of interest. I became an author. I wrote two books, How to Meet a Mensch in New York was the first, followed by How to Marry a Mensch. And for those who might not know, a mensch is a decent, responsible person. And the need around that was that I was single and I became the go-to person in my social circle. And I was resourceful and I was good at finding things to do. And I thought, wouldn't it be so helpful if there was a guide, just one book that you could go to and figure out, get some new ideas for yourself. So that was the first book, which was kind of a zaggedy book. And then the next peg in my path ultimately became when I was a mom. And um, I launched an organization called Motherhood Later Than Sooner. It's motherhoodlater.com because I became a mom over age 35. And suddenly I felt like I was in a different space and I was never age cognizant prior to that. And suddenly now I started to feel like I'd like to meet peers because I think it is a different experience. And um, those were the two things that kicked off some other directions that I then pursued. But I have always found that if you have a personal need, you're never alone. And if you create it, they will come. And that's been my experience. So interesting. I think a lot of people actually don't realize that, that you can use your need. I always, I was always surprised as a magazine editor that when I would always think, oh, it's just me. Um, when I would support and move forward on things that weren't just, I, I would always find out it wasn't just me in general. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the sad part is we're much more average than we think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're not so unique. It's like we're all going through these things um, at the same time. Um, so talk a little bit about, but how did you, I mean, a lot of people think of needs like that, but they don't do anything about it. So like, yeah. what is the, I mean, how many bazillions of people say, oh, it would be great if there was a pen that had this and this and this, oh, somebody would have done it if they'd thought of it. What, what's the difference between crossing over and just thinking about it? Well, for me with motherhood later, certainly it was a burning need. I had a big aha moment when I was out there with my son who was young at the time and I was starting to feel judgment around being a later in life mom and I had lost my mom and I didn't have a sense of motherhood community. And I wasn't really looking at the big picture. It wasn't like I launched it and said, oh, this is gonna become a thing and and a, you know, a worldwide organization, which it's turned into. It really was very personal at that time. And I think because there was so much heart behind it for me that, and of course I have a background in public relations, so it didn't help that I knew how, it helped obviously that I knew how to generate buzz, spread the word. Um, I knew how to do that piece of it, to put it out there, which is important, but I didn't have a crystal ball. And I actually think I was kind of ahead of the pack, to be honest with you, Leslie, because since then there have been books that have come out on the subject the phrase of later motherhood has kind of become a thing. And I honestly think that I was potentially the first to even put it out there that way. Cause I didn't want to say older mom. I wanted to be a little gentler and, and warmer around that description. So for me, it really was about being driven to fill my own personal need and just seeing where that would go. But did you grow up being a doer? I mean, again, there's a, there's a bridge to cross there. Okay. There's a gazelle, like, what is it about you 
that yes, you needed it, but there's a lot of things people need. I'm trying to yeah, I'm drilling, drilling down on you for that because so many people are stuck in the beginning and yeah. they, they can't get to, they can identify need that they have. They might even be able to suggest that it's somewhere else as well, but they don't know how to move from that insight forward. Like there's gotta be, I don't know if it's personality or if it's training or what makes you move because you've moved many times. So it's, yes, I have. And no, I would not say it's training for me. I, I don't know that there is training to do that. Um, I think it's who I am. I, I like to help people. That's a piece of it for me, for sure. And what I create and what I get involved in is never just about myself. It really is always about connecting people and for some kind of greater common good. So that's definitely a thread. What makes me able to do it? I mean, I'm a little type A, I hate that expression, but I'm definitely a doer. I always have a to-do list, um, things get done. I'm also not afraid to put things out there. I tend to think big and I always feel like, let me think bigger first. And if big doesn't happen, that's okay. At least I tried. I'm not afraid to fail. And um, I just, I, I really believe in what I'm doing and I, I just go for it. I think it is a personality thing. So do you think that's something you were taught? What did your parents No, No, no personality, was, your basic personality? Oh, I was, yeah, I wouldn't say I was taught that. Um, I mean, the one thing that I got from my dad was that he, my parents have both passed, but my dad used to say to me, work smarter, not harder. And I do feel like I quote him a lot in that realm. Um, you know, I was just always an initiator. Even when I was a kid in elementary school, I can remember creating a club with some of the other kids in the school to connect us in a way that felt communal. And, and when I was in college, I was also always into the communal experience. I was the one who had a single dorm room and I would keep my room open and people would just come in and out and hang out. So I, I've always just been that person who, I love people, I'm very social. I, I do well when it's a team project and I invite that into my life. And even when I was in high school, I was involved in theater. I wasn't an actress and I couldn't really sing, but I was in the musical anyway. And I got involved with student government and at college, I was the arts editor of a school newspaper. So I've always kind of just wanted to be where the action is and to um, not just be there, but to initiate. So let's talk about your first jobs and, and where those started. And then I wanna connect all of that going through. And again, what we're looking for are lessons that you did differently perhaps than people would think as you look back. Um, and how did you segue from thing to thing? Or were you running a lot of these ideas at the same time on different tracks and moving between different tracks? Well, my first career out of school was um, ultimately getting into PR. I didn't start that way, but I had exposure. 
to that industry and decided it was a fit for me. I was actually an economics major in college, which I hated. So I think my parents thought I was going to get a job at the UN doing something because I was a French minor. And although that never really felt true to me. And once I got into PR, I felt really home doing that. And I was working in cosmetics and some high-end products for a while. And then I started dabbling in um, all kinds of different arenas. Actually, there's not much that I didn't do, but I always loved theater. And I grew up going to theater as a kid. Um, at college, I was the arts editor of a school newspaper, writing theater reviews. So ultimately from that, leading into the, the books, which came next and leading into that motherhood later, which came next, from that, the next thing was that I became a theater producer. And I'm actually Tony nominated for Natasha Pierre and the Great Common of 1812. And I'm actually right now as well developing a musical inspired by my book, How to Marry a Mensch with, with my producing partner. And I'm so excited about that. It's the first thing that I'm actually developing theatrically. And I'm on two other musicals that are forthcoming to Broadway. And that path emerged because of my motherhood work, actually, because for a while there, there was a big trend in mom shows for whatever reason. And this is a great lesson, I think, for your, your listeners. I just decided on a whim to call this theater in California where I had heard that a mom show was playing. And I honestly, Leslie, did not have an agenda. I wasn't even sure why I was calling and it's a good example of me just always being someone who I try to trust my gut as much as I can. And if I'm feeling like I need to do something, whether it's to make that call or do that Zoom or reach out to this person or whatever it is, even if I'm not sure why I'm doing it, I just do it. And I try to stay open to the possibility. As I said, I love meeting new people. I'm also a big connector. So I feel like you never know where a conversation goes. And in reaching out to the theater in California, I left kind of a cryptic message for the producers of the show, basically just introducing myself, thinking it was going to fall into a black hole and I would never hear from anyone. Weeks went by and they called me back and I couldn't believe it. And we had this lovely conversation and unbeknownst to me, the show was coming to New York. And suddenly it became blatantly clear why I had reached out to them. And they wound up inviting me onto the project as a producer, which meant putting some money in. And I did, it was the first time I had ever done that. I had no clue I was even gonna be on the producing track for theater, despite the fact that I loved it. I didn't really know what my role could be, if any. And I found a home for myself in doing that. I loved the show. I loved being at the Off-Broadway Theater all the time. Because of my background in marketing and PR, they gave me a chance to help promote the show, to bring ideas to them. I helped stage some mom blogger nights. And I really found my place. And it was that connection between my background in public relations, my lifelong love of theater, and my understanding of the mom and parenting space and it was a union of all of that that made this the perfect fit for me. And then from there, I decided that I wanted to get involved in Broadway. And I can talk a little more about that if you'd like. Yeah, let's hear that because that is that. I mean, I have heard segues like that before that um, people do sort of segue into Broadway like that. You're not the first person I've heard like that, which I think would surprise people. I thought, thought most people, you know, 
came out of the womb going, this is what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yes, yeah, so let's talk about that. Cause I think that's a dream. And also that you've done a lot of different shows. I've heard people talk about, you know, one or two things that they did and maybe it didn't work out. And that was kind of the end of it. So what made you stay with it and sort of what was the tra- trajectory there? Well, I'm committed to theater. I love it. It's my heart. I have always believed that theater has the power to change lives Of course, I'm a little sad now it's an intermission, but I know it's going to come back stronger than ever when the time is right and safe. And when I was coming off Motherhood Out Loud, which was the show that played at primary stages in New York City that I joined, I had heard about a show that was then coming to Broadway. It was called Sylvia, and it had been off Broadway years ago, starring Sarah Jessica Parker as a dog. It was an A.R. Gurney show. And it was coming to Broadway now, ironically, with Matthew Broderick, which I thought was interesting since they're married and Annalie Ashford, who I adore. And I decided I wanted to make that leap. I love that show. And I kind of just went for it. And so my next role there was just as an investor in the Broadway show. And it did not do well, unfortunately. I felt like it got a little lost in the crowd. It always depends on what shows, what's happening in the season and how busy it is and what types of shows there are. And I also wasn't so you know astute at the time about just being able to assess a show, you know, in terms of commercialability. And I've learned so much about that since then. And after coming off that show, I made a conscious decision that I wanted my name in a playbill. I didn't want to just be an investor anymore. And to get my name in a playbill, that meant that I either had to invest a larger sum or to raise money. And in putting it out there, I actually wound up meeting a gal on the red carpet opening night for Sylvia who wound up inviting me on to um, a show that is forthcoming. It's called A Face in the Crowd. And it's inspired by the musical, I mean, it's inspired by the iconic film rather, an Ilya Kazan film, but it's being developed as a musical and it's being written by Elvis Costello. The music and lyrics and the book is Sarah Boole and the director is Rebecca Tashman. It's gonna be an amazing project. And so that was the next one that I joined as a producer. And then when I was offered that, I was actually offered Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And it was one of those scenarios, Leslie, where I thought to myself, well, be careful what you ask for, because now I've made the decision that I wanted to produce, but I had also never raised money before. And suddenly now I was being offered two shows at one time, and I didn't know if I could even have it. And I decided to go see Natasha Pierre. I'd not seen it in New York. There was a bus going out to ART in Massachusetts. And they were able to put me on the bus and we went back and forth in one day and it was totally wild and crazy. They were passing vodka up the aisle to get in the mood of the show because it's set in Russia. And I fell in love with it. And it was unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I came back home and I said to my husband, "Uh uh-oh, I think I might have to do this. And I'm just not sure what this is going to look like. And I started speaking to friends and other people who were theater lovers to see what they thought about the show. And everyone I spoke to was mad crazy for it. And I said, okay, that's it. You know, I'm on board. And then here I went, I had committed to two shows that I had to raise money for. And the raise for a great comment was very quick. And I was literally a stressed out lunatic. And my cell phone was like glued to my butt because I was afraid to go anywhere without it because I was putting out so many feelers, networking and spreading the word. And I just didn't want to ever miss a phone call from anyone. Nobody was safe in my presence. I even wound up pitching my doctors the show because I felt like you never know. And, And that for me is one of the lessons that I'd love to share with your listeners today is 
I experienced that no is just no for now. And if something doesn't work out, if someone says no, sometimes it's just a timing issue. And I had that perfect example with a couple of my investors who initially, when I had shared about the show, they said no. And I circled back like a month or two later. And one in particular, I circled back and not even to suggest to him, but just to ask if he knew anyone who might have interest in investing. And he wound up turning around and saying, you know what, I'm on board. And I didn't see that coming. And all but one of my investors were first time investors. So it was a really unique experience for me. And then the other show that I'm on that is in develop development right now for Broadway, and that is The Nanny, which is a musical being inspired by the TV show. And it's being written by Fran Drescher and her ex-husband who wrote the TV show and Rachel Bloom is doing the music. And I'm hugely excited about all of them. And, um, and I also joined the board of New York Theater Barn during this time, which is a nonprofit musical incubator. And if anybody loves theater and wants to see some fabulous up and coming works that are now being done a little bit virtually because they do a new work series every other Wednesday, I strongly recommend that people tune into New York Theater Barn. They will find it very uplifting and exhilarating to see all the new shows that we have to look forward to. What is the um, the the link for that? I'm not sure I'm hearing you right. Did it's you New York Barn? Theater, New York Theater Barn .org. New York Theater Barn. Yes. Barn. Barn. .org. Okay. Oh, yep. interesting. And you can just come on and see plays in development? Um, yeah, they do snippets of them. It's a new work series. So every oh. other day, they present uh, two new musicals, two songs from each, and conversation with creatives. So wow. it's, even, it's even better than just seeing the whole show because you're actually in the room witnessing the process and hearing about the inspiration and the path for the show. And it's actually an opportunity that theater fans would never have normally because typically that's what producers are privy to, mm -hmm. not people on the street. Oh, but because it's virtual, they can see it? Exactly. Oh, fabulous. Are they going to stick with that once everything goes back to Oh, Yeah, I mean, I, I think Don't they're going to, you know, visit, do some incarnation of it because what's proven so great is the conversation with creatives. You're not privy to that. Mm -hmm. typically. And, and even though I have been, because I've been in that room as a producer, I've been loving it. And I've been discovering new talent and really just enjoying that. And I should also add, I'm involved with um, a club on Clubhouse called uh, On Broadway, and which is very cool. And if people are on the new free audio app, there's a lot of theater being done on Clubhouse. So explain what you, if people want to do what you did, um, so first they can figure out how to actually be a doer and just make the phone calls. I mean, I think there's mm -hmm. a big lesson there in just, just do it. And what yes. the hell, you didn't get a call back for a long time and then you did. So who knew, right? That's, I always figured they'll forget your name anyway. Life <laughs> is too fast. So they'll, you know, like if you know, they'll never, if they meet you at a party later on, they'll never remember. So it doesn't matter. Um, but what do you have to have in order? What do you have to invest in order to get started in this? Um, and I'm guessing that you started a while ago. Um, and then if somebody's a fundraiser or they've had fundraising experience, 
in another area, could they switch over into it by being the fundraiser? But what do you have to personally invest to get going in it? Well, it depends on the show, but typically, you know, shows go by shares. So typically for Broadway, it's either 25 or 50,000, but you can potentially split a share with somebody. So if you had a friend, for example, or someone you knew who wanted to come in with you, let's say at 25,000 level, if that was being offered for the particular show, then you each might come in at 12.5. And it's a great way to wet your feet, to be part of the experience. And the one thing that I say to my investors is that no one has a crystal ball. Nobody knows what show is going to be the next Hamilton or what have you. I think it's important who's steering the ship. It's important if they're inclusive. I look for that now with any project I want to get involved with. And I think it's important to have a sense of what the demographic might be and, and what is the appeal of that particular show. Like with The Nanny, for example, that I'm on, you know, I view it as comfort food on stage. And when we come out of this um, pandemic and it's safe for theater again, people are going to want to feel good. They're going to have a good time. And that's going to be like the perfect show at the perfect time. And even my show, How to Marry a Mensch, that I'm working on right now, which is just the working title, but the essence of it is, how are you living? Are you showing up as a mensch? What are you putting out into the world? Are you being authentic? And what are you attracting as a result? Whether it's love in your life or anything that you want to make happen for yourself. And not that we want to get preachy with the show, but I am very strong on messaging and we do hope to inspire a conversation and to maybe even create a, a mensch movement. And the timing feels spot on for that because I think people are really conscious now of being kind, being good, being respectful and trying to put that out there. So I, I think when you decide what project you wanna get involved with, you know, there is a timing aspect and in certain things just make sense at the time, you know, perhaps more than something else might. So I try to look at things like that. And as far as fundraising, as you asked, if you want to come on a show. And again, it really does depend on the show because producers do things differently. But for example, like 250,000 is kind of a typical raise for a co-producer to you know, get credit and be in the playbill and, and such. But if it's a non-musical and the capitalization is less, there might be a lesser level to come in. And for my show, for example, The Men's Show, we envision it for Off-Broadway and beyond. And if you get involved with Off-Broadway, and that's a good place to start, that's how I started, the capitalization is always less. So it, it's a good way to get your feet wet. And it's also an opportunity to come in early and to be part of that developmental process because we're early, for example, on my men's show. And I find that very appealing because I like to see how things move along. I enjoy the path of something and I prefer not just coming in to raise money if I can help it. What's a don't that somebody who doesn't know this kind of business, what would you tell them? Do not do. Not do. <laughs> what did you learn? Um, I would do your homework if you can, you know, around producers. Um, you know, I, I'm happy to talk to anyone who has any interest in exploring the industry. I'm happy to share what I've learned. And um, I think it's important to educate yourself. You can take some courses on producing if that's what you think you want to do. I think it's important at some time to have an attorney, you know, a theatrical attorney represent you. I did not have one right away. And now I do. I don't think you need one out the gate, but I would keep that on your radar 
because especially when you're doing contracts and you do have to sign contracts as a co-producer. And if you're new in the industry, you don't know what you don't know. And it is important to be careful and make sure that you're protected. So is, is this your last stop in terms of your reinvention or do you see yourself proceeding into, or, or is it the kind of thing that just, it comes up and you follow? Good question, Leslie. Um, this is kind of a big reinvention. So, but I don't know, you know, it's, I never know. I mean, as I said, I'm getting involved with Clubhouse now and I didn't see that coming. So I try to stay open. And if something excites me, I explore, but I think it's important not to overstretch as well. So I will say that developing Nench is definitely my priority right now, but I do welcome going on other shows that feel important and just desirable to me for whatever reason. Um, but I, you know, I do continue to stay open and I still work as a love coach for singles, which is an outgrowth of my books as well. So. I think I'll always be a juggler. I think that's a big piece of me. I'm a multitasker and thankfully I'm very detail-minded. <laughs> People think I'm so organized and I don't know that I'm so organized. It's that I write things down. I've created a system for myself and I think that's important that you just need to figure out what works for you and to just make that happen, especially today with all the Zooming and the login information and you really do need some kind of system. Fantastic. Anything else that you want to tell us about somebody who might want to transfer over from what they're doing? What, what's the hit rate on Broadway? We know that the hit rate on entrepreneurship is one in 10, right? Mm -hmm. Invest in 10, you expect one to take off. What's the hit rate on um, not just Broadway, but off Broadway and Broadway? Is it similar to that or is it lower? Is there a number, rule of thumb? You know, I, I don't even know. I can't, I'm not in a position to answer that. I, you know, for me, it's it's really about the work. I mean, I what I say is that if you're investing in theater or producing theater, were it not for investors, they would not be theater. So what you're doing is supporting the arts. And if that feels good to you, that's really the reason to do it. If you're going into it strictly because you're looking for that hit maker, that's not necessarily the best way to approach it. You might get lucky and that's fantastic. But as I said, nobody knows. You have to be really into the project. And, and when you are, when you, even as an investor, cause I felt this way, it feels like your baby. It really feels like your show. And there's such a good vibe around that. And you get to come to opening night, you get to go to the preview. There's a lot of communal experience. And once you're in that room, you're also meeting really interesting people. So you never know who else you might meet, whether it's theatrically they're interesting or they're in some other field. And, and there's any people invest from all walks of life. I mean, doctors, lawyers, I mean, it tends to be a little more high end, but you don't need to be wealthy to invest per se. You just need to be accredited. And it's just a cool experience to bring into your life. And I always say to my investors, I can't guarantee that you're gonna make money from it, but I can promise you're gonna have a great time because I will make sure that happens for you. Thank you, Robin. That's amazing. And with that, we will say I'm um, totally inspirational. And I think this has given people 
some really good tips and tricks on how they might get there. And um, sounds very doable. It is. You know what, Leslie? It's never too late. And if you want something big enough and hard enough, you have to work for it. And I will say, too, that don't presume that it can't work for you. I have people who have thought, I think of me, that, oh, she must travel in certain circles to be able to raise money and all that. I can tell you that was not at all the case for me. I did not have people in my back pocket to approach. So don't ever think it's not feasible for you. You can do it if you want to do it and just go for it. But you have to stay positive and believe it is viable because your attitude makes a big difference. I love it. Thank you so much, Robin. I so appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Robin Gorman Newman, and I hope that all of you will follow your pursuits and look into everything that you might enjoy or might think about that crosses your path. Pick up the phone, make the phone call, and don't worry about what other people think. See what happens. They might not even respond to you today, but maybe down the road. Along that thinking, I have a wonderful little product that I put together for you, which is kind of tip sheet for women 40 plus. It could be a man too, but all my best uh, reinvention tips. I, I have been interviewing people for the last 10 years when I ran more magazine as well about how to reinvent. And I thought, let's just get you started with kind of a tip sheet that has links that puts you back into our website and puts you into the products that I've used before. So at least you can get started. I think that's one of the most painful parts is saying, oh my God, I know I have to reinvent. And it's not, it might be your career, it might be your health, it might be something with your family. We really cover all of it. So you can come to CoveyClub.com, you can look at the website, you can read all the original stories that are there. But um, look for my 31 badass tips for reinvent. For launching your reinvention and if you come to the site and look for that you will find a downloadable thing that you can take home with you or you can read and follow the links to all the different stuff that I've learned over time because reinvention's hard and you shouldn't have to start where I had to start which which was at zero I had no one to help me so enjoy that. Have fun. It's free. Pass it along to friends. And we hope we'll see you again. Remember to subscribe to Reinvent Yourself and we will be reinventing together. So take care.